Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. This week, The Economist asks, how does an economics Nobel Prize winner feel about wealth? We have to make capitalism serve people better than it has been serving people. Health. Much, much more important than economists traditionally thought it was. And Brexit. So much prosperity to so many people. I really hate to see that disintegrating. Disparities in income and wealth, how to analyse them and what to do about them, have risen sharply up the political agenda since the financial crisis. Movements of political protest against income inequality have gathered steam across the world in the last few years. But what exactly are we measuring? And how do we offset concerns about the discrepancies with the need for a more globalised economy, driving innovation and incentivising ambition and reward? If the work of Thomas Piketty, the French economist, fanned the flames of that argument, well, another practitioner, Angus Deaton, beat him to the coveted Nobel Prize. Deaton has been a quiet star of the field, Professor of International Affairs and Economics at Princeton University since 1983 and President of the American Economic Association, though he's proudly a Scotsman by birth. The wealth and health of modern nations and how to gain a more precise understanding of them have been two of his major themes as a microeconomist, but his work has also spawned the Deaton paradox of why consumption doesn't fall proportionately when incomes get a rude shock. He's recently turned his attention to the elusive economic quest to measure the impact of well-being, and he pops up too in the political argument about money and populism in American politics. Welcome to the eclectic Professor Deaton. Angus, when we talk about inequality and the economy, should we be talking about it first and foremost as a problem in terms of stability and well-being, or is it a problem for economies as such? (laughs) That's a big question. You know, I'm interested in inequality sort of almost incidentally, in that I think what I really care about is how people are doing. You know, the big issue here is whether people are really being seriously left behind And of course, that's very much tied in with inequality since, you know, if the economy as a whole is doing okay and there's a bunch of people not doing okay, then that, you know, obviously reflects inequality in that not everybody's sharing in whatever prosperity there is. But for me, the prime focus is on how people are doing. And I think it's a little too glib just to turn and say, you know, it's all the fault of inequality. Inequality is a very, very complicated thing. It's a complicated thing, and I think one of the conundrum you've set out to resolve over years is that balance between concern about it, which we feel very much in the popular discussion at the moment, and how much that is balanced off by the benefits of innovation, of reward, and of pushing people to want to do better. Have you come to a view in your own mind about how much developed economies have got that mix right or not? 
I agree very much with what you said, that inequality is a reflection of progress. And my book, The Great Escape, is largely about that. When you get episodes of progress, those progress tends to be very uneven. And so some people benefit a lot more than others, and that generates inequality. You can't have progress um, without generating inequality. So to say we don't like inequality, but we do like progress is, is sort of a weird thing to say. But a socialist might well say that. Why is the socialist wrong? I just don't think it's feasible, you know, that inventions that come along are going to be seized by some first. And, you know, we would really like to bring everybody along. And in the end, we hope we will. And sometimes we do. And historically, that's been the case. But sometimes it's not the case. And then one has to try to do something about it. So I don't think anyone has ever come up with a recipe yet in which everybody moves in lockstep. I mean, that would be very nice, but I think it's purely a fantasy. So, you know, that's the good side of it. The bad, and, and of course, it also at the same time, it's like creating incentives for people to do things that are good for them and good for all the rest of us. There's lots of things that make people rich that are good for everybody else and good for them. There are lots of things that make people rich that are not good for everybody else. And I'm thinking of rent-seeking or crony capitalism or people petitioning the government to make themselves and their friends and their cronies well off at the expense of everyone else. And when you get that, that's a really that's inequality that's really, really harming people. It's a theme we come back to quite often in The Economist. We, we had a big special report on inequality and, and we also had one on meritocracy in America. And I think the, the shared conclusion of both was that something had ground to a halt and that one didn't have to be positioned in a highly critical relationship with capitalism, as some are, to conclude that. So what do you think has gone wrong, if you agree with that? And where would your points of access be to tackling it? There's a famous economist called Albert Hirschman who died a few years ago and who was in Princeton for many years. And he had this story about the tunnel, which is, you know, those, there's a pair of tunnels that link New Jersey with New York. And when you go through these tunnels, you're not allowed to change lane, but they tend to completely clog up. And so you're in this tunnel and the traffic is completely jammed up. And you've been sitting there for a couple of hours, losing your dinner, your theater, your opera, whatever you're trying to do. And you're completely furious and very frustrated. And then what happens is the other lane begins to move forward. So there's a lot of inequality. And you interpret that, of course, as they, they've unblocked whatever was blocking the tunnel. And you're very positive about it. And so that's the sort of sense in which the inequality makes you feel better because you see that inequality as opening up opportunities and chances for you. And that's just terrific. However, if that lane goes on and on going forward and the tunnel never gets unblocked and your lane is stuck forever, then eventually you get extremely angry. That's a very good story about what's been happening in America over the last 20 or 30 years. It's a bit invidious to put economists on the spot vis-a-vis each other, but how would you say you differ from Thomas Piketty in your view, both of how this inequality problem should be analysed and the suggestion of an approach to resolving it? He's very much fundamentally opposed to inequality in and of itself, and I don't think I am, and I think that is sort of a difference. He's done the profession an enormous service by focusing on wealth inequality, 
which is something that had sort of dropped out of the profession and become a very small minor industry. I don't think what we're seeing right now is really a wealth inequality problem, but you can't pay people the sort of salaries people at the top are getting without us generating a wealth inequality problem. So I think the warnings from that are very welcome and very well taken. Just crossing the Atlantic for a moment, the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn positioned, uh, you know, as you all know, quite far to the left. He's actually said, I want to go into an election and tell people I'm going to go to the electorate, he says, and I'm going to reform capitalism. Is that doable? No, I don't believe so. I mean, I think you could really hurt and destroy it. I'm not sure. I don't think either Sanders or Corbyn or Trump, for that matter, has a set of policies that are actually going to make those people better off. Why are they wrong to believe that you can simply get up and say, I preach the reform of capitalism, I'm going to do it? A lot of people like that message. What's wrong with it? Well, they like the message, I think, because capitalism is not serving them very well. Um, It's not clear to me that any of these programs have a coherent message which actually could make it better. And I think we have to make capitalism as it is, um, serve people better than it has been serving people. And I think what we've seen, not just in Britain and America, but in Europe too, is that for decades, the rate of economic growth has been declining decade by decade, of course, made much worse um, by the financial crisis and by the austerity policies that followed that. You know, if you had rapid growth, Even if it's not equally shared, everybody can get something. Once you go into the slow growth, no growth mode, the only way I can get ahead is at your expense. And I think that poisons everything too. You mentioned austerity. And I wonder to what extent you saw yourself as being an anti-austerity economist. I think the vast majority of economists are anti-austerity economists. It's been one of the sad things in, in my professional life. I really thought like most economists thought 20 or 30 years ago, that you know this would never really happen again because we sort of figured out how demand management works. But I think we grossly underestimated the political pressures in that sort of situation. But I mean, I think one thing that's a very powerful analogy for politicians and for ordinary people is the false analogy between a government or a state and a household, but you know, if the household's having a hard time and running a deficit, then it has to, austerity is indeed the right um, policy, but that's just not true at the macro level. And I really thought that, you know, economic analysis since Keynes and beyond had sort of made that accepted wisdom, but apparently not. But if you look at British government expenditure, the position of George Osborne as Chancellor, well, some people would say having preached austerity, not that much was delivered. Quantitative easing came on tap to to take the edge off it. Indeed, you know, Yanis Varoufakis, <laughs> generally uh, you know, a great critic of austerity, says, well, you don't really have austerity in Britain. Do we have it or don't we? I think that's all a matter of degree. It's obviously nothing like what's happened in Greece. But, you know, this is not what I measure. In terms of what you do measure and how you've changed what you measure... What do you think that you've been able to measure much better? And what would you like to be able to measure more? Well, I think we, we've got many, many, many more household surveys around the world than we used to have, which is, you know, the surveys that go out and ask people what they're spending, what their incomes are. So we have a much better picture than we ever used to have of what global poverty looks like, 
of what global inequality looks like. So, you know, that, that I think has been a huge step forward. Another big step forward is realizing that inequality is not a single thing. As the data have gotten richer, we can do better than that and we can see who's doing well where and why. And then that's a much more, a much richer and a much more interesting and um, scientific way of making progress. And your refinements of that technique, indeed, were one of the things that the Nobel uh, judges cited. But I wondered if you'd ever resolved your own paradox. Well, I, almost no one understands what the paradox is. Give, so. it, a, give it a crap for our <laughs> listeners, will you? <laughs> the paradox, it's a very inside economic sort of thing. What I exposed was that economists didn't know what they were talking about. <laughs> and the, the, the real heart of the paradox is this business about thinking of the aggregate economy as if it were a single individual, and it really isn't. And once you look at individuals properly, there really is not very much of a paradox. But it, it became very famous at the time because it, it was you know, a simple explanation that was given in all the textbooks and that everybody believed just turned out to be nonsense. You know, the issue we're talking about here, which is when people's incomes change, um, how much should they change their consumption? And a lot of that, you know, you don't want to ratchet up your spending if this income is just going to go away very quickly. You know, it's just a one-time thing. On the other hand, you know, if you go to pay rise and you know that that's going to be consolidated for the rest of your life, then you should increase your consumption a lot. So that's the set of ideas that are involved here. The trouble is that when you look at what's happening to individuals, their incomes can be jumping up and down a lot. So, you know, a plumber has a good year where they get a lot of contracts and then next year everybody's pipes are fine and they don't get very much money. So their incomes jump around a lot. But when you add that up over the whole economy, a lot of that idiosyncratic variation over individuals sort of vanishes in the aggregate. And so when you look at the aggregate income and pretend that's a single person, you're going to get really the wrong answer. And that's sort of what the Deaton paradox is about. The big debate going on in Britain right now is, of course, the EU referendum and a possible Brexit from the EU. And the polls are pretty much neck and neck, but a lot of economists have been aligning themselves with Remain. Are you one of them? Yes. Why? I, I think the, the sober economic estimates are pretty convincing on one side or the other, but I don't think that's the real argument. I think it comes back to what we were talking about before, which is that a lot of people are very angry and they're looking for scapegoats. And I think Brussels is a sort of convenient scapegoat here. And I think, you know, this pan-European project, or at least the whole liberal post-war world order, which has brought so much prosperity to so many people in a previously very difficult um, part of the world, I really hate to see that disintegrating. And I think... That's really what's happening, that, that people are feeling it's not delivering for them anymore. And that Brussels, you know, along with immigrants or whoever, are sort of convenient scapegoats that seem to make sense to a lot of people when they're angry because the economy is not delivering for them and they've got to find something to blame for it. And what I was also going to say is, for me, I'm a Scot and I really care about what happens in Scotland. And, you know, if Brexit goes ahead... I think Scotland will find itself in an extraordinarily difficult um, position. You mentioned migration, which is obviously the huge, other big topic, or even bigger than, than Brexit possibly in the Eurozone. And yet there is a tension here, isn't there? I mean, there's a one argument which says you can have almost a million migrants come into Germany, and that will at some point be good for the economy. But there's an immense strain in the short to medium term. Is it therefore a wise risk to take? 
it's one of these things where economists have perhaps not done a terrifically good job of persuading the general public. Many people believe in a sort of lump fallacy of jobs, that there's a fixed number of jobs around, and if migrants, immigrants get them, they can't have them. Um, and, you know, that's clearly not true. And it's especially not true in the long run. I doubt it's very true. It's even true in the short run. But people really believe it. And it's a real dangerous place for politicians to go. You've written a lot about uh, money in politics, particularly in your columns that range widely and beyond pure economics. You've written about that in the American political context. Well, it's, a, it's a pretty old saw, isn't it? The, you know, the idea that there's too much money in politics. But here's the dilemma about the upcoming election. Hillary Clinton has the money. She's got the big fundraising machine. But Trump, Donald Trump, has the populism. Is it people, not money, who are the bigger danger in America? Well, I mean, it's what they always say. You know, people, there's nothing worse than people. (laughs) You know, congressmen are spending 60 or 70 percent of their time on the phone raising money all the time. And, you know, they go to very predictable places to raise money, like the pharmaceutical industry or the Israel lobby, for instance. And, you know, I think politics is very, very much shaped by that. And that we have these very powerful industries that are not particularly good for us and have very, very effective lobbies. That doesn't mean they can't be tamed. Could we look at public health and public health and economics, which is a borderline, long before it was fashionable to work across silos, I think you were leading teams that did so. And one of the things I wondered, whether all this argument about public health, about well-being, how precisely can we calibrate it with the economy and with economic outcomes, or is it just too vague a link and too vague an aspiration? Well, I mean, you can make it vague if you want, but I don't think it has to be vague. I don't think you have to add all this stuff together to get a single index and call it well-being, even though you know I have done work on exploring questions, sometimes called happiness questions, which try to tackle that directly. But there's a much more important message, I think, which economists have gotten over the last 30, 40 years, which is, you know, if you're just looking at material well-being, you're not looking nearly broadly enough, and you have to look at what's happening to other aspects of well-being like health, like education, like participatory democracy, and so on. You don't necessarily have to add them all together into a single index. So health, I think, is just much, much more important than economists traditionally thought it was. And that just doesn't mean health care. It means health outcomes. And that's where we then impinge on public health. I'm very interested that you mentioned those because there was a bit of an argument, wasn't there? Indeed, you know, even quite quite a row really about a piece of work that you published on the fastest rising causes of deaths uh, in America. D- tell me about that. There was a lot of shock, yeah. And you know, I <laughs> in middle of October, my Nobel Prize was announced, and I never thought I'd see as much publicity as that again in my life. And then three weeks later, we published this paper, and it was like ten times as much. And every major political candidate talked about the paper. We talked about it with President Obama in the White House, and it it was really just an absolute sensation. And this was causes of death, wasn't it? What we discovered was that, um, you know, if, if you take white non-Hispanics, their overall mortality rate uh, that's been falling, you know, for the best part of a century and continues to fall in all our other competitor countries has actually turned around and is rising. And, and this is something that you just don't see. The things that's driving it are deaths from alcohol, you know, liver disease, deaths from suicide, which have been rising very rapidly for men and for women, and this incredibly horrible thing that we have this giant epidemic of 
accidental overdoses of drugs, some of which are illegal heroin and the like, but most of which are actually legal prescription drugs, which have been, over the last 15, 20 years, being prescribed for pain relief. And enormous numbers of people are addicted to those, and they're overdosing and they're dying. And this is actually driving up the death rate. So this is especially the case for white non-Hispanics with only a high school education. And those are exactly the same people who used to have good factory jobs. The factories are now in Cambodia or Vietnam. They're exactly the same people who fed very little income increase for 30 or 40 years, and they're exactly the same people who are voting for Donald Trump. They sound like the victims of globalization. That's a lot of it. I mean, that would be the leading hypothesis. In many cases, our communities have collapsed too because the tax base has gone. You know, when the factories go off to Cambodia, um, there's no tax base for the schools anymore. There's been a lot of progress in recent years for Hispanics and for African Americans, but this white group, especially the lower educated white group, is really the one that's been left behind, and that they have little in the way of privilege of any sort. On a rather more cheerful note to end, <laughs> see, here goes, it's very truly con- concerning what, what you lay, lay out there, but in your own life, if the Nobel Prize comes entirely as a, as a surprise, but what does it change? Actually, ask me that in a few years. I mean, it, it's sort of hard to tell. It's certainly a big event in your life, so that all sorts of people you've never heard of want to meet you and have something to do with you. And a lot of those requests are interesting, and so you take on too many, so, you know, I'm running around. But I had decided to retire from Princeton before I got the prize, which I'm relatively proud of. You know, it wasn't like I was taking advantage of that. So I do have some more time. And it gives me, you know, a lot of freedom to decide what to do from now on out. I think it's not that often that at the age of 70, you get a chance to decide what you want to do with your life. Thank you very much, Angus Deaton. You're welcome. I'm Anne McElvoy, and that's it from The Economist Asks this week. You can let us know what you think about inequality on the level playing fields of Twitter and email, so do tweet us at Economist Radio or send us an email at radio at economist.com. Goodbye. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.